Available at farmnewsnow.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Agriculture through a modern lens. This is the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. On this episode, infectious diseases threaten the health of people and animals and impact the global economy. The University of Saskatchewan's Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization works with international partners to study human and animal pathogens and develop solutions. Vito Intervac has developed a COVID-19 vaccine, which is preparing to test in humans. Just before Christmas, Vito Intervac received approval from Health Canada to begin a combined Phase 1, Phase 2 human clinical trial of its vaccine to protect against COVID-19. Director and CEO Volker Gertz says the vaccine was developed using a technology that has proved to be safe, reliable and cost effective. We heard about the devastating impact of African swine fever on the pig population. Canada is still ASF free, but the work continues to prevent the spread. But there is also a lot of work going on behind the scenes developing a strategy to deal with it if it comes to Canada. John Ross with the Canadian Port Council will explain the complex process involved in developing a plan in order to protect the industry. After the break, Volker Gertz. Digging into the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarlane. The University of Saskatchewan's Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization works with uh, several partners. They study both human and animal pathogens. Vito Intervac has created its own process of testing a COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Volker Gertz is the director and CEO of Vito Intervac. So first of all, Volker, what stage of development is the vaccine at? And uh, what are the expected timelines moving towards a distribution? Yeah, so um, very good news. Uh, Just before Christmas, we received approval from Health Canada to begin our clinical trials. Um, So this will be a combined phase one, phase two clinical trial, and it will start in Halifax. And then um, um, for the phase two, will involve multiple sites in Canada. And as I said, um, we received the green light before Christmas. We're just now in the process of um, enrolling volunteers and all that and hope to start um, the first uh, immunizations within the next few days. So can you just explain how the human clinical trial stage uh, moves along? How many people ultimately will be taking part and what specifically needs to be accomplished? Yeah, so a phase one typically um, just looks at the safety of the vaccine. So it looks at any um, unwanted reactions to the vaccine, if there is any. And um, so what we're doing is we have three age groups, three arms, if you want, involved in this, um, starting with a middle age, so 18 to 54. And then there's two groups that are uh, above that, so from 55 to, to 65 and then above 70. Um, those are uh, suggestions that were made by Health Canada to add a, a third group um, to, like an older group to it. Um, and so that involves, that phase one involves 108 uh, individuals that are, that are enrolled in or will be enrolled into the phase one. And then we go into a phase two, which then is also looking at how well does the vaccine induce an immune response? Like, are we getting the, um, the immune response that we're looking for? And so for that, we continue with the same age groups, but then we have um, various doses of the vaccine to see which one works best in humans. 
And so now we are enrolling hundreds of volunteers. The, the um, absolute number is not identified yet as, as that will change as the data becomes available, but it is in the range of um, several hundreds of individuals. So can you just explain what type of vaccine this is and how it was created? So this is a what we call a protein um, subunit vaccine. So in contrast to, for example, the RNA vaccines that Moderna or Pfizer are providing at the moment, we're also focusing on just a subunit, so a part of the virus, the same, the spike protein that um, the virus uses to attach to the cell in your respiratory tract. But instead of providing the genetic information for it, which is the RNA vaccine, we are using the protein itself. So this is a protein subunit vaccine that is formulated then with an adjuvant, so a molecule that stimulates the immune system to get a better immune response. And um, that is a technology that has a number of advantages. Uh, it doesn't require this ultra-low freezer storage, for example. It's relatively easy to produce. It's cost-effective. And most importantly, it has an excellent safety track record. It's a technology that is being used currently in a number of vaccines that humans are getting every year, um, including, for example, the hepatitis B vaccine or diphtheria, tetanus, uh, whooping cough, those uh, childhood vaccines that uh, every kid in Canada is getting. Those are all um, protein subunit vaccines, and so we know that they, they have a, a very good track record. So what do we know at this point about the safety of this subunit vaccine and its potential effectiveness? So we completed um, all studies in animals uh, that that are required to look at both the safety as well as how well the vaccine works or the efficacy of it. And um, there have been no issues, no concerns whatsoever regarding the safety. So all of these studies revealed um, no, no concerns at all. And in terms of efficacy, um, we're testing different vaccine candidates, but um, those that we are going into humans now are highly effic- efficacious. So we, we're seeing a very significant reduction of clinical disease in, in these immunized animals as well. And that is more, more very important. Um, we're also seeing a reduction of the viral replication, so how much virus you have in your upper respiratory tract and can potentially shed to others. And so this is a big um, big accomplishment. Several of these vaccines that are currently going forward um, will have difficulties to also um, reduce the viral replication at the upper respiratory tract, and our technology in animals shows that it works really, really well. So our vaccine will accomplish that. So can you explain to us how this vaccine is expected to fit into, uh, I guess, that arsenal of tools that's out there right now to combat COVID-19? Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's obviously, um, it's great to see that we have already vaccines available and that immunizations have um, started. I think in the long term, it is very important for Canada to have domestic vaccines uh, that are that are made and, and developed for Canadians and that are available to Canadians um, over the, the long term. COVID-19 is not going to go away, and so we will have to probably 
um, vaccinate annually or maybe biannually. That's something that um, as the data becomes available, um, people have to decide. But um, it is important that we have more than just a few vaccines that are currently um, um, available. In the long term, Canadians need to have access to um, a number of different technologies and um, our vaccine is certainly, as I mentioned, offers a lot of advantages over some of those others and, um, you know, whether um, it could even be used to boost some of the, the um, other vaccines. Um, those are things that will have to be determined over the next few, few months and few years. And uh, I'd also like you to explain a little bit about the implications of this type of technology, and I guess as it relates to mutations of the virus that we've heard about or other future viruses that might uh, come up. Yeah, so it's certainly something that um, we are looking at. Um, I'm sure you are aware that there is the new variant um, coming out of England, and then there's also a new variant that is coming out of South Africa right now. Um, both of those um, I'm not too concerned about. Um, both of them uh, will be covered by most of the vaccines that are currently in development. So I, I think that people don't need to worry about too much about them, but there's always the risk that there one day might be a variant that... Um, looks so different that the vaccine will not induce a good immune response to it or a protective immune response to it. And so that's certainly something that here at Vito, um, using our infrastructure, we're, we're monitoring. Um, we're trying to get these, all these new variants as they emerge and then uh, do the testing here to demonstrate that our vaccine works in, against those. Dr. Volker Gertz is the director and CEO of Vito Intervac. After the break, John Ross, the Executive Director of the Canadian Pork Council, will share the work to stop African swine fever from entering Canada. Digging into the topics that matter to you, the AgriPod with Alice McFarland. With me is Canadian Port Council Executive Director John Ross. Um, we're going to be discussing some of the efforts to prevent the spread of African swine fever in Canada. So, John, first of all, just how complex is the planning to prevent the introduction of this infection? And for Canada, where we export the better part of 70% of what we produce, either as live hogs or as pork, uh, an outbreak of, of African swine fever would be devastating. And the simple reason is the initial reaction from Canada's trading partners will be to close their borders. Yeah, countries, uh, you know, as you might well imagine, are, are terrified of, of, of having African swine fever. The consequences are grave. And so the immediate reaction is to close the borders. And for a country like ours, where we export 70% of what we produce, this is a big problem. The challenge we have and the complexity of this problem is that you have an animal health disease. It, it's a, a disease that spreads. It's not easily spread, but it, it's certainly a disease that does spread. And so in order to one, prevent its introduction into country, into Canada, and then secondly, prevent its introduction on any of our farms, you've also, you've got a very, very complicated supply chain at the border, at the, at the frontiers. Uh, the Canada Border Service Agency obviously has a, has a lead role to play here, as does Canadian Food Inspection Agency. So as much as possible, can we prevent the virus coming to Canada? And that's, that's a role that they take a lead in. 
follow that up. How do we keep that virus off our farms? And that's that's a role for individual producers and biosecurity. And, and how do we make sure that we keep that disease and quite frankly any other disease that's of, of consequence to our to our producers off of our farms? So just in that in that little space of of, of the complexity of of a, of a federal government involved with um, um, preventing the introduction into the country, and of course uh, uh, provinces and, and individual producers keeping that uh, the bugs off their own farms, you can start to see a level of uh, a level of the complexity. But to throw in an extra challenge, if you have to consider wild pigs, and we've seen in Europe the wild pigs are. Uh, our reservoir for this disease. We have wild pigs in Canada. And the last thing obviously we want is to have a, an outbreak in a wild pig population because it's, it's extraordinarily difficult to eradicate it once it gets uh, into the wild. But if you consider the, the mandate for wild pigs, just exactly who owns them at any one point in time, the federal government, if they're in a national park, Provincial government, if they're on crown land, uh, private landholders, perhaps if they're on a on an individual's farm, uh, is there a municipal government involvement here? If we're talking about uh, feral pigs, so these are pigs that maybe escaped from uh, from a commercial operation or even a small uh, small lot operation. So trying to round up all of the various departments and levels of government, the expertise that you need across the uh, across the file, that's what lends itself to complexity. So what has been put into place to deal with these issues in terms of strategies and uh, the infrastructure? I think uh, we recognized early on, and, and, and the royal we here, across, uh, across government and industry, that none of us had the, uh, had the solution. It wasn't simply going to be that, that one person or one organization could fix this, and we were absolutely dependent on each other to come forward with the comprehensive plan and, the compre- and implement that plan, take the actions necessary. It required a little bit of, uh, of, of well, actually required a lot of work from a lot of people at a lot of different levels. We tried to quarterback this through uh, the establishment of a group called the African Swine Fever Executive Management Board. So this is a senior-level group uh, drawn from uh, representatives in provincial government, federal government, and industry. We come together every second week, uh, and, and we meet. There's, uh, there's a fair number on the phone. There's probably uh, 30 on the call between the... Uh, the, the various people that are taking notes and you know those that are doing the work and of course then the, then the senior uh, senior officials as well we come together every second uh, second week and we manage something called the African swine fever action plan and the action plan itself has four components uh, obviously there's that one on biosecurity that I mentioned before both at the uh, at the international border and uh, and on our farms We've got uh, a work a group that's looking at preparedness. What are the things that we need to do? Whether that might be surveillance or, or you know, if we were to break, where would we dispose of these surplus animals? All of those sorts of things on the preparing side. We have a group that's looking at business continuity. So if we have a break in Canada, how do we minimize the impact on all producers? How do we make sure that we can continue to get back into our export markets as quickly as possible? And there's a group chaired by um, uh, Morgan uh, Curran Blaney, actually, who works for, the, uh, for Maple Leaf Foods, uh, uh, chairs that group. And lastly, uh, and obviously a you know, big ticket item here, communications. And uh, there's a full working group uh, on that space that uh, are looking at all of the bits and pieces of communications and whether that's communications from 
targeting a, perhaps a small lot producer in Canada through to a commercial producer in Canada through to a, a traveler that's coming to Canada from a, perhaps an ASF-infected country. Large, large range of communications in, in play. So what you've got is a, a very collaborative uh, approach between the federal, the provincial, and in, federal, federal and provincial governments and industry. Working with a very comprehensive action plan, trying to put in place the measures and succeeding in many spaces to put in place the measures that are necessary to to ideally prevent the introduction of the disease. And that's, you know, that's really the space that, that we are, are most active in. And then secondly, how would you respond to it if it did, in fact, uh, happen in Canada? So in terms of the action plan, you mentioned four main pillars. What are they and why are they considered uh, so fundamental to this whole plan? Well, certainly the four pillars, biosecurity, uh, and, and really biosecurity about keeping the disease out. Really, this is this whole prevention space that is so important. Uh, none of this other exercise that we have to go through happens if we can just avoid the disease altogether. So we have a big focus on biosecurity and, again, at the border and on our farms. Two, two pieces to that puzzle. There's a, a, a section on preparedness. This is about getting ready. Do we have the procedures in place? Do we have the right surveillance program in place? Do we know how to use things like pen side testing? Uh, do our labs know how to test? A whole series of preparedness exercises that, that will enable us to, um, to respond quickly if we have to uh, and to respond in a very, very effective manner. Business continuity, a big piece. And, and that's the third pillar. And you can imagine if we have 70% of our, of our sales are stopped, either sales of pork or sales of live pigs, because we break with ASF, how do we keep all of our businesses? And that's the entire supply chain here. You have to think about truckers. You have to think about folks that work in a, in a processing plant. You have to think, obviously, about producers. How do we keep that entire chain intact while we don't have access for 70% of our sales? How do we manage that? And so we have a business continuity group that looks uh, look, that's investigating that space. And last but not least, and I mentioned this before, the communications exercise, and it is an extraordinarily complex one. You think about it, as I said, communications to small lot producers, communications to commercial producers, communications to, to food to retailers, to importers, to travelers, to Canadians at large, uh, a large, you know, quite a, quite a big space of, uh, big span of work to be done in that group. So those are the four pillars of the action plan, biosecurity, preparedness, business continuity, and communications. Each one of those groups chaired by a senior uh, representative, either from industry or government. John Ross is the executive director of the Canadian Pork Council, and uh, he's here discussing the strategies to stop African swine fever. So, John, beyond the planning, what is happening on the ground right now in terms of action at this point? Well, there is a, a lot of things that are happening on the ground, and you know, we, we could we could go on for uh, you know, I think I referenced ten of them during my presentation at the at the Swine Innovation Pork Seminar. Um, and they range through from um, measures that have been taken at the border today. I mean, actually, six months ago now, eight months ago now. And that included 
measures to get more dogs, detector dogs in airports to target uh, target travelers that are coming in. They'll really look for that uh, illegal pork product, illegal meat products that may be, uh, may be coming in in somebody's luggage. Uh, work at the border to control the import of grain, feed grain, that may be coming from an ASF-infected country. So those measures, those are concrete actions that have been taken to strengthen our border biosecurity. We have uh, certainly, you know, the, the, the work that's being done at the Canadian Pork Council in terms of its, uh, its Canadian Pork Excellence Program and, and the, the components in that program related to biosecurity. So the Canadian Pork Council is leading a charge to um, renew Canada's uh, pork biosecurity standards. Uh, we have traceability in that space. And then traceability, of course, a tremendous tool here to allow us to, to respond quickly to a disease outbreak, to rapidly zone the country. So a lot of work being done in the traceability space to make it um, make the data a, just a little bit more comprehensive, make it a little bit more timely. Uh, you know, we ideally you'd like to have 100% coverage of real-time data. That's extraordinarily difficult to achieve, if, if possible at all. But we're going in that direction as, as, as far as we can. You know, I also suggested just to pick on a, a, another one. We've done a lot of work in the space around zoning. And zoning the ability to define an infected area and and so that we would use that to say, all right, the pigs on this side of that line are in the infected zone and we're going to work hard to take that disease out of that zone. But the pigs in the non-infected zone, can we figure out how to allow them to continue to be traded into the into the global marketplace. We have some examples where zonings work. Canada has recognized the zones that the Germans have put in place uh, following their outbreak of African swine fever and uh, an outbreak in their wild pig population, but an outbreak nonetheless. And as a result of that, Germany is allowed to continue to trade um, in, uh, in, in Canada. The and again, those are those are three that I'm picking off the just the top of my uh, of my head. Uh, but many, many more in place, ranging through from some very, very concrete work that's been done on disposal, and how do you environmentally, you know, dispose of uh, carcasses, dispose of uh, infected animals in an environmentally appropriate manner. Uh, some work on destruction, how you know, if we're forced to uh, into a uh, euthanization of of some animals, how do we do that in the most humane manner possible? Good work coming forward in those spaces as well. So I guess, truthfully, just how prepared is Canada and what can we expect to be happening or changing through this process? Canada is, is very, very strong in animal health. We are not a country with its, uh, without resources. We are not a country without expertise. Uh, we, have, uh, we have producers that fully understand the importance of animal health. We have producers that fully understand biosecurity, supported by, uh, by veterinary infrastructure, both private and public uh, veterinary infrastructure. We have laboratories. We have all of the pieces. So Canada, you know, relative to some countries, um, is certainly blessed. We're blessed by geography. We have a number of things that uh, that play in our favor. So, how well are we prepared? I would suggest we're 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 we're, we're prepared. Quite frankly, we have demonstrated that this country can do amazing things in animal health if we're forced. 
the, the, the challenge we're having is how do you get from that sort of 80% level, which is kind of where I think we're at now, to that 90, 95% level? And those last few steps are the hardest steps to take. Um, they're, they're not simple. How, you did, how do you make a system that's you know, fairly, fairly robust? How do you make it that much better? And, and, and that's the challenge for us. How do we work together? How do we work together at speed? Um, how do we make sure we make the right decisions at the right time? Those are the questions that are coming forward. But yes, I would say we're, like, you know, I'm, again, I'm touching wood here because I hate to tempt the fates, but I would say we are prepared. And, you know, we have an enviable record in this country of, of animal health. Is there more to be done? Certainly. And, and that's the point of the ASF Executive uh, Management Board. And that's the, the point of, uh, of, of, of the effort that's underway is to get is to get better, but we have gone a long way down the road. We're, we are pretty good at this animal health stuff. So we're focusing on African swine fever right now, but is this process um, effective for other animal health disease issues? The principles that we're working on right now, the principles we're demonstrating that if you work together collaboratively, you can do really cool things. Those apply to other diseases like foot and mouth disease. They apply to other you know, challenges that face this industry, antimicrobial use. Uh, you know, we can, we can look at some of the bigger, bigger, higher level policy questions and this approach of working together that we're really demonstrating through the African Swine Fever and the Executive Management Board, that approach that's, uh, that's demonstrating some results, demonstrating a different way to do things. We're not just sort of going to the government saying, well, you fix it. Uh, we're actually going to the government saying, listen, we're all in this together and we all have a role to play. I would say there's some really valuable lessons that are coming out of the ASF experience that we're going to be able to apply to animal health in general across Canada, and we'll further uh, advance this whole discussion we're having about the creation of Animal Health Canada. John Ross is the Executive Director of the Canadian Pork Council. It's time for the weekly Agriculture News Roundup for the week of January 11, 2021. Canada and the United Kingdom reached an arrangement for trade on organic food. The United Kingdom-Canada Organic Equivalence Arrangement came into effect on January 1st. It applies to agricultural and processed products of plant origin, livestock, and livestock products grown or produced within either country or whose final processing or packaging occurs in either country. Last year, Canada exported approximately $9.3 million of certified organic products to the UK. There is more optimism in the alfalfa seed industry. Speaking during the Saskatchewan Alfalfa Seed Producers Annual Meeting, David McGregor with Imperial Seed said the prairies produced its largest crop ever back in 2017 at 59 million pounds and then prices plummeted. Since that time, production has dropped with only 22.5 million pounds of seed produced in 2020. McGregor said he expects there to be solid prices and manageable acres over the next few years. 24 more fields in Saskatchewan have the club root pathogen. The Ministry of Agriculture released its club root distribution map, which shows 231 soil samples submitted from across the province with 11 positive results. Over 966 fields were examined during the program. The club root map shows affected areas south and west of Saskatoon and Prince Albert, east of Lloydminster, west of Swift Current and north of Yorkton. Visible club root symptoms have been confirmed in a total of 75 commercial fields since 2017.
Crop research in Saskatchewan getting a big boost. Saskatchewan and the federal governments are contributing $9.8 million for 39 crop-related research projects. Ministry of Agriculture Research Director Barb Ziesman said the funds will make farms more profitable. The supply outlook for U.S. corn and soybeans was lower. The January USDA report indicated supplies in September would be smaller than previously forecast due to a reduced estimate of last fall's harvest. The USDA had 2020-21 domestic soybean ending stocks at 140 million bushels, down 35 million bushels, and corn ending stocks at 1.55 billion bushels, down from 1.7 billion in December. Farmers are welcoming Ottawa's review of the Canada Grain Act. The act itself hasn't changed in almost 50 years, while grain marketing has changed dramatically in that time. Western Canadian Wheat Growers Chair Jim Wickett said the review is important. He said canary seed needs to be added to the bond issue if a company defaults and the grain grading system needs to be overhauled. Exports for most commodities have been very strong and there are few burdensome carryover stocks to worry about. Chuck Penner with Left Field Commodity Research said he's forecasting a 7% increase in yellow pea area, a 19% decline for green peas. China is Canada's largest yellow pea customer. Penner said China may diversify its purchases, but is looking to Ukraine as a second option. But that is not a factor this crop year because Ukraine has no export supplies. If you like what you've heard, you can rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to AgriPod with Alice McFarlane for more weekly episodes. The AgriPod is produced by Colby Heiss with host and CJVR Agriculture Director Alice McFarlane and is a division of the Jim Pattison Broadcast Group. Available wherever you find your favorite podcast and at farmnewsnow.com.